welcome everyone to your bubble of wellness through science, cultivating a new generation. This space of time and empowered information was designed so that you can have a relaxing adventure with your inner health, understanding its five core pillars that also assemble your life. We'll go deep into the science and wellness of nutrition, exercise and metabolism, emotions, consciousness and meditation, and abundance. So relax, enjoy, and keep a student mindset to cultivate your life. Hello everyone, good afternoon or good day. Here I am with another episode of our podcast, Cultivating a New Generation. It's episode six. And today we have an amazing guest with us, Cynthia Turlow. And I'm just going to read a little bit about her background so that we can know her and know the experience that she has. Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting. Highly sought after speaker, CEO, and founder of Everyday Wellness Project. She's been a nurse practitioner for over 20 years. Is a 2x TEDx speaker. Her second talk on intermittent fasting has been viewed over 7 million times. She has been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, and in Medium and Entrepreneur. Cynthia was recently listed in Yahoo Finance as one of the 21 founders changing the way we do business. She's also host of Everyday Wellness Podcast, which was listed as the 20th podcast that will help you grow in 2020 by Entrepreneur Magazine. And in Business Insider, she's the 21 podcast to expand your mind in 2021. So. Here we are with Cynthia. Welcome, Cynthia. I am really thrilled that here we are to discuss about the mystifying intermittent fasting. That's the title of our episode. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. So to begin with this interview, I would like to know your, your story, your journey. So just let me know how, how it all began. Oh, well, you know, I think that I had a pretty traditional Western medicine training. I trained at a big research hospital. I'm a total adrenaline junkie. I loved ER medicine and grew to love cardiology as a nurse practitioner. And I think after having children, I got much more introspective. You know, a lot of Western medicine, and, and I'm not denigrating the amazing work that my colleagues and peers are doing. But a lot of what we do is reactionary, meaning we wait until someone has disease. There's not a lot of preventative focus for most of us. And so I started getting more introspective, you know, as I was looking at, you know, I had a child with life-threatening food allergies, and that got me very interested in food and nutrition. I'd always been healthy, but even more so. And I started to really consider was, you know, the lifestyle piece is something that we don't focus enough on. Um, you know, our, our system is really not designed to give us an hour with every patient. It's more like 15 minutes, maybe 30 if you're lucky. And you're really focused on symptoms. And in cardiology, as you can well imagine, we're dealing with people who have diabetes and metabolic inflexibility and cardiovascular disease, as well as a myriad of other issues. And so there's a lot of medication. 
And I started to ask the question of, could it potentially, could this all be worsened by food choices? And, you know, that prompted kind of a self-discovery. I, you know, started a PhD program and that didn't feel right. I did a wellness coaching program that didn't feel right. Then I kind of discovered this nutrition, a functional nutrition training and that lit me up. And, and ironically enough, there were a lot of other Western medicine trained providers who were looking for the same types of answers. And so for me, I really started to pivot. I still had my day job as a nurse practitioner. I have two, you know, at the time, two young boys and husband who traveled a lot. And then, you know, there was just a day I woke up and I said, you know, I've been doing this for 16 years as an NP and I'm tired of writing prescriptions. And so without really having a clear cut plan, I left Western medicine and became an entrepreneur. And, and for anyone that's listening, that's an entrepreneur, uh, it, it's a total leap of faith because there are no guarantees. It's not as if you get a paycheck every week. And I, I think I'm you know, married to a pretty fiscally conservative man who was completely stunned and stumped. Why would I leave a, you know, a, a well-paying job to essentially not get paid for a while? And so that began the journey of you know, self-discovery, again, a lot of pivoting, and you know, really fell into you know, looking at largely middle-aged women or women in their late 30s, early 40s who felt stuck. I saw plenty of them in cardiology, didn't really understand what they were going through, but yet I started to attract this whole tribe of women who were, you know, there were missed opportunities with their traditionally trained healthcare providers. You know, they were put on hormones, they were put on antidepressants. They uh, would, I, again, I, I put it a largely ignored population. And so, which is unfortunate. <clears throat> so long story short, uh, the following year, I decided to really challenge myself. And as an introvert, I, I'd done a lot of public speaking uh, throughout my career. And, and, you know, that was something I enjoyed doing. But I decided I wanted to do a TED Talk because I, I felt that uh, you know, information needed to be more accessible. That was a, a way to reach more people. And so I, I did my first TED Talk and not soon thereafter, I, I got a second TED Talk and uh, not realizing how pivotal that would be in my career, my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, and about, gosh, about six weeks before that talk, I was hospitalized for 13 days and almost died. And part of my, you know, mental recovery while I was in the hospital, and for some of that, I didn't realize how sick I was. Uh, and for the rest of it, I did was getting home to my family was my a number one priority. And the second priority was doing this talk. I just felt like it was important for me intellectually to, to prove that I still, <laughs> still had the ability to, uh, you know, use my brain kind of proactively. And so 27 days after a 13 day hospitalization, lost 15 pounds. Um, I was so skinny. I did this talk and, uh, I, I honest to God, you can ask my coach, I got off the stage and I said, it's the worst talk I've ever done. Cut off that stage. It's the worst talk I've ever done, and and she just said, "Oh, you're you're being way too hard on yourself. You did great." And enjoyed the rest of the day, and you know, went home, went back to my home with my son, and then, uh, you know, that talk went viral, and uh, you know, the whole concept of intermittent fasting, which had been something I had been doing for for several years and had been using as a strategy with my patients, suddenly became uh, a great deal more interesting to a lot of people. And I think the greatest joy uh, about this whole entrepreneurial journey for me is that that talk helped inspire a whole slew of people, men and women, to try out a strategy that largely is free and flexible. And so I think people are really looking for 
strategies that are sustainable lifelong as opposed to a diet, you know, something that's temporary, something that yeah. is, uh, you know, designed to be a short-term solution to a long-term problem. But in a culture that is largely overfed, understimulated, and, um, you know, becoming increasingly metabolically sick, intermittent fasting is something that people can tangentially really be able to appreciate and embrace. And so I love that there's more attention on it. And certainly it's a topic I know well, a topic I love talking about, but that's a little bit about my journey. So I'm an introvert who uh, became an entrepreneur and uh, most importantly, I'm still a wife and a mom, but very, very passionate about strategies that people can A, have control over, because I think that's really important. It's important that we empower our patients and, and, and people. Uh, and B, you know, kind of cuts against the grain of what we have been taught. You know, that, that is, for me, I'm, I'm a disruptor in a very kind of relatively benign way, but a disruptor in that I'm challenging people to go against preconceived ideas and dogma that are being disproven. And, you know, that may make people uncomfortable, but our bodies are designed to eat less often. And that's, that's the way, that's not new or novel, although people like to say that this is a fad and this is a diet. No, it's not. Uh, we did this back in our ancestors' days and this dates back to biblical times. Most of the major religions incorporate some degree of fasting in them. So it's not new. Uh, it's just become it's just become a, a philosophy, a methodology that more people are adopting. And I, I think that's fantastic. So that's a little bit about me. Well, that's really an impressive story. And it's, it's what we have all been through, that those changes have, and pivotal times that we need to, to have a guidance of our consciousness of mm -hmm. what we do, of what, what we are passionate about. So hopefully this story also will inspire women here in, in Mexico and, and in Latin America to change their lifestyle too because I know that there are many problems of health also mm -hmm. here about the, the way we eat because we have been taught about mm -hmm. that. And as you said, there are so many uh, myths and misinformation in the, in, the, in the web and in the social media that people think that it's going to do something bad for them. No. Right, right. Well, and I mean, think about it just is, you know, it's probably the most important dogma <laughs> that I like to dispel is that breakfast yeah. is the most important meal of the day. But if you look ancestrally, historically, when that started becoming popularized, it was by the cereal makers, you know, Kellogg's exactly. and other processed food industry as we kind of transitioned from, you know, farming into more industrialized, um, you know, economies and, and recognizing that you know, about the worst thing you can eat first thing in the morning is a carbohydrate dense breakfast. I mean, that is sure to spike insulin. And here's the thing, when insulin's, you know, spiking, your body's not using that energy. It's actually storing it. And, uh, you know, that's the problem. That's why people get hungry when they are eating a lot of, uh, you know, low quality processed carbs because their body can't access that energy. And so that's why they're they're hungry and they're, you know, having trouble losing weight and, you know, they're eating every two or three hours and it goes completely contrary to what we were taught. You know, I, I had a, a, a mom 
I always say she was crunchy before her time. You know, she was, <laughs> you know, first generation Italian and, you know, she had us eating organ meats and we weren't allowed to snack and she would make us go outside. Even if it was cold out, we had to go outside and exercise after we did our chores and made our beds and did all of those things. And I said, you know, I didn't eat more than three times a day as a child. And, and that's, okay. you know, that to me makes sense. Whereas now we are conditioned that we have to take snacks everywhere for our kids and they need to be eating every hour or two. And, you know, I even remind my children, I'm like, you know, the average American eats 16 to 17 times a day. If you look at sugar sweetened beverages incorporated with food. And so think about that 16 to 17 times a day that you're spiking this hormone insulin, which is storing that food. You are not accessing it. You're just storing it. And so you're metabolically unfit, you know, you're, you're gaining weight, you're inflamed, um, your blood sugar is probably not well controlled and makes a heck of a lot more sense to have, you know, protein, healthy fats and, you know, unprocessed carbs in a meal and, you know, stay satiated and full and, you know, have a whole heck of a lot more energy because your body can use it to fuel your body uh, much more so than this kind of antiquated dogma. Like that's a lot of my message is that I encourage people to question, you know, don't be a sheep, you know, here in the United States using this, being a sheep just means you're kind of going along with the flow. You're not questioning anything. Whereas I am a big believer in question things, not in a way that you're rude or disrespectful, but just invite the conversation to say, is this true? Does this make sense? Exactly. And if we go to the biochemical process of digestion, it just takes five to six hours for mm -hmm. the food to arrive to the intestine. Mm -hmm. So it, is, it doesn't make sense to eat every two or three hours because no. we are not even having time to digest or absorb anything. Right. So and I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important distinction because when you give your body more time to digest your food, you're less bloated, you have more energy. Uh, you know, I, I always think to... Um, you know, so many years of working in healthcare and, you know, telling my patients, oh, you have to stoke your metabolism. You've got to eat every two to three hours. And I would go to the gym in the morning and have a protein shake. And then I would work out and I'd have a protein shake. And then after that, I would, you know, have a meal and then I would have a snack and then I have another meal. I mean, by the time I, I got home from the hospital or from the office, I'd eat multiple times throughout the day. And it, I mean, it makes me laugh now. I'm like, because I, I think there's value in working out fasted. And it makes a heck of a lot more sense to, you know, fuel your body in a way that you, you feel better. I think we've, we've gotten so disconnected from the whole process of eating and how our body feels when we eat, or we've gotten disconnected from the whole concept of being hungry. You know, what does true intrinsic hunger feel like? A lot of people don't know. Exactly. Yeah. It is that disconnection of, of our bodies and the signals that it is giving us that we got used to the to, to the anxiety, mm -hmm. to the things, to, to craving things and, and feeding each time more and more. So it, it really doesn't make sense the old ways. But I also, I also fall for that. Mm -hmm. And when I started going deep into the science of the intermittent fasting and I started doing it, I felt a huge difference in terms of, of my body and in mm -hmm. terms of energy and in terms of mental cognition mm -hmm. the attention that i have the the retention of the things the creativity mm -hmm. it, it all light up i think yeah 
No, that's amazing. Yeah. So I was going to ask you also from the story that you gave me from, from your life, which would be your, your biggest turning point where you said, that's enough. This is where I'm going to turn into another direction of questioning more of the things. Yeah, I think so. You know, at the time that I left clinical medicine, I had an 11-year-old and a nine-year-old. So my kids were old enough that I had the bandwidth to be able to think more thoughtfully. Because I think for anyone who's listening, when you have little kids, you spend years just existing. And it's not that you're not enjoying being a parent, but when kids need a lot of you to, to dress them and bathe them and feed them, and then you get to a point, like I always say, five is when, I, when my kids each turn five, when they were seven and five, I suddenly felt like I had a little more, I could read again. I had the bandwidth to be able to do that. So I do think that the turning point for me had a lot to do with the fact that I was able to think more thoughtfully. You know, I don't like being an automatron. And that is what I was feeling like. Every patient that came in with X got these five things. And every patient that came in with Y got these six things. Um, and I, I just wasn't challenged um, the way that I, I had been uh, when I was a younger nurse practitioner. And to the credit of the, the group that I work for, they came up, I mean, they came up with every kind of schedule to keep me happy, um, lots of variety. I mean, they were wonderful. They asked me, you know, did I want to do, they just kept giving me lots of options. And I finally just said, this isn't about you. This is about me. And I just need to something different. And being an entrepreneur is about as different as being a clinician could actually be. And so for me, it became fun again. I got to learn new things, which is part of who I am. I like to critically think and I, I, enjoy, um, I enjoy learning new things. And, and obviously, with no business training, I learned very quickly. And now I've got a, an amazing team and um, have an amazing way to you know, connect on social media and blogs and podcasts and things like that. So to answer your question, I, I do believe it was when I just felt like I wasn't being challenged anymore that I needed to kind of follow my heart, uh, kind of intuitively knew that I was meant to do something else. And now if anyone were to ask me, I tell people all the time, this is what I was meant to do. All those years of being a clinician were in preparation for what I'm doing now. And I'm so grateful for those years and grateful for the amazing patients that I had and, and clinicians that I worked with. But I'm meant to do this. This is where I'm meant to be. So. I think that uh, you know, sometimes those decisions are made intellectually, and then sometimes they're made kind of emotionally, and mine was probably a little bit of both. I mean, now my husband doesn't think I, I'm crazy, but I know at the time he thought I was a little crazy. But you know, you know, looking back, you can kind of connect the dots, and it makes sense. You know, Steve Jobs used to talk about connecting the dots. They may not make sense while you're doing it, but retrospectively, you can look back and you're like, okay, now I understand why I made those decisions, why those things happened the way they did. It was all meant to happen this way. Yeah, it is, it is. All, all, all that you are saying is just like fitting in the, in the places because mm -hmm. it is your, your guidance system that is telling you that, that you are not the, your biggest potential. Mm -hmm. You can give more, you can drive you can mm -hmm. really feel alive, you know? Mm -hmm. Many people stay in their jobs because it's safe. Right, and that's, that's what I try to tell my children that uh, I call it the path less traveled. And, and you know, for me, like my first undergraduate degree was in poli-sci, I applied to law school and got in. And then I made this major pivot and took pre-med classes. And so that was my first, I would say that was my first major pivot 
took pre-med classes, ended up in nursing, became a nurse practitioner. And this is, you know, again, taking the path less traveled, but I think it's made my life so much richer. Like the one thing I can say is that when you continue going to a job that you're, you're not inspired by anymore, maybe you're not as intellectually challenged, uh, you start to feel like you're, you know, you're like a robot. It's like Groundhog Day. I do the same thing every day. This is what I do. Uh, and, and now there's no day that's ever the same, like never or any of my days the same. And so I, I thrive on that. That's actually something I enjoy connecting with new people. Uh, I feel very, very grateful that my skills as a nurse practitioner and as a clinician uh, translated into an ability to have, um, you know, not only marketable skills, but a level of, um, you know, people, people perceive because I'm a clinician that when I have an opinion, um, it's considered to be, you know, well-supported, well-founded, you would hope. Uh, but, you know, on the, on the flip side, because I have that, that, that perspective, it always lends itself. Like when I'm having a conversation and I say to someone, this is not an emergency because I know what a real emergency a medical emergency looks like because I've dealt with plenty of those. So, you know, let's kind of unpack what's going on. I know this is upsetting, but let's unpack what's going on. And so I would be the first person to say for many years, I was an adrenaline junkie and I love living on the edge and dealing with really sick patients. And then I got to a point and I was like, I don't need that anymore. I don't have to prove myself anymore. Uh, and so I can prove myself in different ways. And I can also demonstrate to my children that we don't have to remain static throughout our lives. We can evolve, shift and change at any point we have the ability to do that. You just have to trust the process. Yeah, be patient because mm-hmm. it's not like tomorrow it's gonna happen. No? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so taking advantage also of your nutritional background and, and everything that you know, what would you suggest for people to, or what would be your three options in terms of diet? Mm-hmm to give them more, more like a, a new lifestyle. Not, mm-hmm. not about dieting because also you can clarify what you think about diets <laughs> because many people still believe in them. So Right. So first I want to address diet. So diet, when you say diets, it constitutes, to me, it constitutes a short-term solution to a long-term problem. So whatever you are going to do or change, it needs to be a lifelong commitment. So I don't like the word diet for that reason. But when it comes to nutrition, I would say if people want to think of three things that'll improve their health almost immediately is one, stop snacking because that's not benefiting you at all. Two, stop drinking all your calories because we don't register calories that we drink. We just don't. And it's, and it's a way, whether it's soda or fatty coffees or too much alcohol, uh, if you're trying to lose weight and get healthier, you need to stop those habits. And then I would say third, uh, most people, I, I truly believe that you have to work on the satiety piece. And so when you're talking about macros, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, things that are most satiating, I would say, you know, protein and then healthy fats and then carbs. And so this makes everyone very, it triggers a lot of people. There are no carbohydrates that we need. There, it's not, we don't need to eat carbohydrates, but we're a very carbohydrate focused culture. Most Westernized cultures are, whether it's bread or pasta or, you know, baked goods or whatever it is. 
So I remind people that our bodies can actually make carbohydrates in their bodies. You know, if we need to make glucose, it's co-gluconeogenesis. So yeah. protein and fats are necessary. Carbohydrates are not. But I would encourage anyone that's, that's trying to make better choices when you're plating your food. So first stop snacking, uh, you know, then get the liquid calories reduced significantly. Then, you know, when you're putting your meals together, whether you're still eating breakfast or not, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it should be protein and healthy fats first. Then you add in the carb. And it could be that you have a third of a cup of a carbohydrate, which is completely the antithesis of what I see most people doing. They do a massive amount of carbohydrates, which spikes insulin. And then they do a teeny tiny portion of protein and maybe, of, maybe they don't even think about the healthy fats. And so, you know, those three changes alone are profoundly powerful. And, and I've also come to, to find out that, you know, when I was first doing this, I, I like to over deliver. So I would give people these long lists of recommendations. And what I've come to find out is that people can only process so much at once. And so you're much better off doing low and slow. So a couple simple things that you can do to improve your lifestyle right now, much, much easier than if I get rattled off 20 things. So those three, those three things in and of themselves can make a huge difference. And, and I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, depending on where they've grown up culturally or, or how their eating habits kind of derived, we know, for example, that certain ingredients in the processed food industry like seed oils, so canola, cottonseed, soybean, all of which are bad, which is ties in with you should read food labels. That's important. But we know that they also drive this desire to eat more carbohydrates. And so, you know, sometimes people will say they feel like they are powerless, truly powerless uh, over food. And, and that's largely because the processed food industry has made it that way. So a couple of things to think about, but all things that would be, you know, definitely valuable for people to consider when they're trying to make some changes. Yeah. Absolutely. I completely agree because those combinations that the industry do are designed to, to trigger the point of mm -hmm. anxiety and cravings and mm -hmm. start just keep repeating the cycle. No, mm -hmm. it's, it's just getting the idea for the people that they should try it. Mm -hmm. If they try it and they constantly try to do it, engage in the process, they are going to feel the difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and the other thing to remember is, you know, changes, I always say small changes have large impact. So it's important for people to understand, like, it may not seem like a lot, but over time it all adds up. And, you know, the other thing is it can take three to six weeks to really, you know, feel like those small changes become, you don't have to think as much about them. So maybe if you're going from eating you know, mini meals throughout the day and drinking, you know, lots of soda, uh, you know, just changing some of those habits on a small degree can have a huge impact. So just recognizing it may take a couple of weeks for it not to feel so overwhelming or, uh, you know, habits are hard to break. They are, uh, but you have to kind of replace your habits. So maybe you have uh, dessert every night. Maybe you go from eating dessert to Maybe you have a small portion of berries. I'm trying to think of something that's you know, lower in carbohydrates. And maybe over time that becomes something you actually enjoy. So you get a little more fiber, you get some benefits from the berries, you know, those phytonutrients, the color of highly pigmented berries, uh, definitely better for you and are going to have less net impact on insulin and 
uh, can just be part of a new ritual that you create, or you go for a walk after dinner, you know, even like a 10 or 15 minute walk can lower blood glucose levels. So real simple things. You don't have to overthink it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for, for those recommendations. Mm -hmm. uh, so that people can, can start doing this, the small changes. Mm -hmm. So what is the most common misbelief and sabotage that you, that you have had with your clients and your patients? Biggest self-sabotage, I think limiting beliefs. I, I think it's the mindset piece. It's never so much the, you know, the actual like going to the grocery store and buying healthier food. It's that people talk themselves out of being successful. I can't do that. I can't sustain that. That doesn't work for me. This won't work for me. So I think limiting beliefs are something that people really have to be aware of and you know, just recognize that our mindset is the most powerful thing we possess. Without a doubt. I mean, without question. And so if you're feeling like you're in a negative spiral, you have to kind of, you know, reframe it. Reframing just simply means, okay, today is hard. Tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow I'm going to have an easier day than I had today. Or, you know, mm -hmm. saying to yourself, what's really important to me is that I get healthier because I have children. So instead of me wallowing in self-pity, <laughs> I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm doing, making these changes because I want to be a healthier parent. I want to be able to run with my children. I want to be able to play with my children and not get winded. Or, you know, my high school reunion's coming up and I, I want to be able to feel energetic <laughs> and feel good about myself. So the reframing of limiting beliefs is really, really powerful because I see far too many men and women, not just women, men and women who will talk themselves out because it is hard. You know, we all have to pick our own hard. There was a meme that I saw circulating probably two weeks ago, and it was talking about different types of hard. And it was saying like, marriage is hard, so is divorce. You know, um, you know, exercise is hard, so is being obese. So they were, they were making the point of saying like, pick your hard. There's no easy, like none of us have it easy. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I'll be the first person to say like, I can't eat the way I did in my 20s and 30s. I'm okay with that. I've accepted that. I go to bed before my teenagers. I accept that. Um, that's just part of, you know, choices yeah. they make. And, and so I become kind of the butt of jokes in my family, but I accept that uh, we all have to pick our own hard. It just depends on which one's most important to you. What do you value more? Exactly. And it is, it is funny that you mentioned that that was the biggest misbelief and, and challenging because today I, I did um, I do Facebook Live sometimes mm -hmm. in, in my account. And, and today I was reflecting on the power of words mm -hmm. and the self-inner dialogue that we have and all the things that we constantly say and mm -hmm. say and they rebound mm -hmm. on us. And they, they are just creating that limiting belief or the victim mode. Like yeah. I, I, I used to call that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. absolutely. Well, and I think that's a really good point. And for anyone that's listening, uh, I, have, I have rarely watched my TED Talks because it just kind of makes me squirm to watch myself talking, although the message is good, but I just kind of, all of us can be a little self-critical. And the other day I sat and watched my second talk and I kept saying, I don't know how <laughs> I did that because I had been so sick. And, and there were people making comments on uh, underneath the talk saying, oh, she's burping which I wasn't burping. I was actually so nervous. I was kind of catching my breath as I was talking. And I said, it speaks to mindset because my body 
my, my brain hadn't caught up with how sick I had been at that point. So it's like, when I look at that now, I'm like, wow. But it just also demonstrates like for me, people are like, you sure you want to do that? And I was like, yes. Like my, you know, my typical kind of like, I had this inner two-year-old that was like, yes, I'm doing this. No one's going to talk me out of it unless my doctor had said no. And she didn't. So, um, you know, that inner two-year-old that just kept saying like, I know I need to do this. It's important for me to do this. And as I tell people, my brain had not caught up with my body yet. So my brain hadn't fully realized how sick I had been. And then like a month later, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. That's a little bananas. But the point being for anyone that's listening, that's trying to talk themselves out of something or trying to convince themselves of making a healthier choice. Like, listen, I could have given a hundred excuses and no one would have questioned anything I did, but I did it anyway. And so sometimes you just have to do it anyway. Exactly. Dare to do it. And, and as you pointed out, really, really beautiful with your inner child. No, connecting with that with that child that is eager to do the challenges, to do mm -hmm. the things. They don't and ever you, think it; they just do it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And if you encourage them just a little bit, is enough to to do more, no, mm -hmm. to give more. So it is beautiful that. And uh, how does intermittent fasting act in the level of your metabolic and cognitive health? What have you seen? Just Tell me two things or three things that you have seen that it improves in really amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned cognitive health. And so we know when your insulin levels are low that uh, you have a lot of mental clarity, but we also know that when your insulin levels are low and, and your body's using fat as a fuel source, you increase the production of something called BDNF, which actually ties in with brain stem cells and it increases that production by over 400%. So there's a lot of brain health implications with low insulin uh, beyond just the cognitive piece. I also think something that's not often stressed enough is, is a, a principle called autophagy. And so autophagy is only activated when you're fasting. So it doesn't happen when you're, when you're eating. And this is a, a way that your body can recycle and get rid of diseased and disordered cells. And it's a really, really important process, not just for immune function, you know, getting rid of stuff we don't need, but also for cancer prevention. And so in light of COVID, in light of this global pandemic, uh, I, I like to remind people, I'm like, listen, you have the ability to tap into autophagy every day if you so choose, but several days a week. And we know that, you know, you don't have to fast for days for autophagy to be activated, although we know that it really ramps up over 18 hours and, and certainly even more so around 24 hours of fasting. But those are just two ways that intermittent fasting really improves your health and I think are particularly relevant, you know, given the fact so many of us are social distancing and um, are looking for ways to really support our health. And, and you know, the nerdy side of me likes to kind of educate people about the science behind intermittent fasting, but just from the mindset that you get rid of, of diseased cells your body doesn't need, which is great. And you know that it improves cognitive functioning and improves stem cell production in your brain. And, and I think those things are really important, especially as we recognize that, you know, um, brain disorders, cognitive disorders, Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that, really uh, become much more problematic, uh, the more metabolically inflexible we are. So the less healthy weights we have, the more prediabetes or insulin resistance that we're seeing, it really ups your risk of developing neurodegenerative um, 
disorders, which for anyone out there that's listening, I don't know about you, but my brain staying sharp is pretty important to me as I'm sure it is to you as well. And this is an easy way to support that. Exactly. Yeah, also uh, boosting the immune system. No? As, as you mentioned, now that we are being challenged with this kind of virus, mm-hmm. I, I think that, or I believe that this is just a test for us Yes. to understand that our health is the most precious thing. And if we really care about changing the paradigms, mm-hmm. we are going to be able to, to thrive under any kind of threat no? that probably is outside. Absolutely. And, and I think that also there's science supporting that many of the COVID-19 patients that have been able to overcome the disease quickly, they have good immune systems boosted mm-hmm. mainly by exercise and the way they eat. Just yes. those two things, no? <laughs> Super important. And I think, you know, obviously it's easier said than done, but I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, you know, people doing, keeping things simple, getting vitamin D, you know, sunlight exposure, you know, moving your body every day. Now with COVID, a lot of people couldn't go to gyms and I get it but we got super creative. I mean, I have two teenage boys, my husband and I, we've got a treadmill, we have kettlebells, uh, we have TRX bands. I mean, we got very creative with body weight exercise. I became the biggest walker known to man because sometimes that was the only time during the day that I was by myself and my dogs, I think one of my dogs lost five pounds because I would take them for these really long walks in the neighborhood and I would listen to a podcast or a book on Audible. And that became you know, really important to us was that we were creating new rituals. But you know, being as physically active as you possibly can. And then, you know, it all starts with food. Anyone that's listening and thinks that nutrition isn't important, I mean, that to me, I mean, and I say it all the time now, all the time, it all starts with food. It is so important. The food we choose to eat, you know, provides our bodies with nutrition or, or it inflames us. And quite simply, you know, we really have to be diligent about the way that we eat. You know, you buy the best quality foods you can afford. And, and for everyone, that may look a little bit different. Uh, you know, we don't have to remain rigid to the way that we eat, meaning, you know, if paleo works for you for five years and then you find out it doesn't, that's okay. That certainly happened to me after I got sick. I couldn't eat paleo. I couldn't eat any fiber. My gut was just, you know, was made it very clear that it was not happy um, and inflamed. So, you know, just being open-minded to trying different things. And it might be, you know, maybe someone listening needs to go vegetarian for a couple months and then, you know, transition to paleo or, you know, be carnivore or, um, you know, ketogenic diets, um, you know, all of those things that people like to call them faddish, but really I think people are looking to get back to less complicated eating because really if you do traditional keto, traditional paleo, carnivore or vegetarian diet, and you're not eating processed foods, you're eating a less processed diet, and that's all ultimately beneficial. But you could get 10 people together and they might not all be able to eat the same foods, and that's okay. Like, I don't really eat a lot of um, kale or spinach or anything like that. And my Italian mother comes by, she's always trying to push all these vegetables on me. And I was like, listen, my body just doesn't like those things right now, and that's okay. Could be transient, could be permanent. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure yet. I'm still recovering from uh, you know, my healthcare hiccup. So I think it's really important to emphasize to people that food matters, the quality of your food matters, where you get your food matters. Um, eat less in a box bag or a can. Uh, I, will, I will die on that, on that stand. 
saying that I think it's really important what we choose to eat matters. It really, really does. And to suggest otherwise is, is foolish, frankly. Yeah. And well, the way, the way you put it in terms of listening to the messages of your body, you know, mm -hmm. that's called interoception. And that is the way you are going to, to find out what works for you. Mm -hmm. I also have had a lot of problems when in terms of uh, pork, in mm -hmm. terms of meat with of pork, and, and I just take it out from mm -hmm. my diet and that's it. Mm -hmm. I noticed something was uh, doing to my skin, so I started just saying, what am I going to take? And I started to take things off until I got to, the, to this kind of meat and mm -hmm. that was it. No, but if you start paying attention more to to the way your body looks, to mm -hmm. the skin, to to your energy, to to the way you also digest the food, that's that's all the messages that you need because there is no one solution for for mm -hmm. anyone. No. no, and and that's why the the term bioindividuality is so important. It wasn't a term I learned in my Western medicine training, but it was something I learned in my nutrition training, and and I really embrace that fervently. Like I work with a lot of women and I can tell you there's no one size fits all philosophy for anyone. Yeah. In terms of intermittent fasting, what would be like the kind of people that you have seen that are not benef benefits by them? <clears throat> well, you know, it, it always, so, so here's the funny thing. It's a good question. It's an important one. Uh, but what I would say is there's always an outlier. So this is kind of broad strokes. So if you have a history of a disordered relationship with food, either binge eating, anorexia, bulimia, mm. unless you're working concurrently with a eating disorder specialist who can kind of monitor how you are behaving while doing intermittent fasting, that's one group. Uh, if you're a brittle diabetic, so if you are not aware of when your blood sugars are low, when you're, excuse me, when you're hypoglycemic, uh, not a good, uh, not a good choice. I really think about you know people who are undernourished to begin with. So if your BMI is low, your body mass index if it's less than eighteen, there are a lot of fit pros. You know people I see on social media who kind of hide their eating disorder uh, or they're you know being very very thin um, through intermittent fasting. So obviously if you're too thin um, with a BMI less than eighteen. I would say that anyone who's got a, a significant chronic disease, you should have a, a conversation with your healthcare provider. It doesn't mean it's not the right strategy, but I think it's important to work with someone who actually knows how to troubleshoot yeah. when someone is fasting. I think pregnant, breastfeeding, uh, or you know, women that are trying to conceive, not the best strategy. And, and there's a lot of good research that suggests you know, you're not in a position to be restricting calories when you're in those, when you're either trying to conceive, are pregnant or are breastfeeding. And really the focus should be on the health of, of your fetus or your baby, yeah. and not so much on fasting as a rule, but certainly, you know, 12 hours between meals is reasonable. And I think those are usually the big ones. I know that I get a lot of questions about children and I don't think it's the right strategy for children. I know there are some clinical trials going on with obese children in a clinical environment. That's very different. And, you know, the elderly, if someone's really frail and, you know, is at risk for falling, um, probably not the best strategy. Now, when I did my second TED Talk, I mentioned people over the age of 70. And I trust me when I tell you, I got a lot of angry emails from people saying, hey, I'm 75. I've been doing this for a long time. And I'm like, hey, 
I was just giving parameters because really that's what you need is parameters. But in when in doubt, talk to your healthcare provider or get resources. There's lots of great resources that are out there. Yeah. Well, I, I think you also answered the, the other one that it was the safety measures that, that you should use when, do, when doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is completely logical for, for the set exceptions mm-hmm. of people that, that can do this. I also listened and, and read about some uh, women that have problems with acne. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they start doing intermittent fasting, they, they raise the, the, the acne. Have you seen that in your clients or is just... Um, have I seen more acne with people doing intermittent fasting? I think that actually speaks more to gut health. You know, when people are seeing mm-hmm. eczema, psoriasis, acne, uh, you can see some of that, that you can see some of that through, um, just overall gut health. You can see that through imbalances in hormones, you know, if they are polycystic ovarian syndrome, if they're estrogen dominant, uh, but I, I look at acne as, you know, it's just, a, it's a clue that you need to look a little deeper. And so skin, skin manifestations or skin issues are always a reflection of what's going on internally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we cover all, <laughs> all that I wanted to, to ask you. I, I really, really appreciate your, your help and, and your participation in, in this podcast. I'm just in the beginning of this launching process. I think you understand everything of these. I do. Uh, I do. Congratulations. It's an exciting time for you. Yeah. Thank you. And it's going to be really, really amazing. The information that you share with everyone. So where can, can people find your, your information? Where can we support you? In, oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, starting with my website. Uh, so www.cynthiatherlow.com. Uh, there are links to my podcast and blogs. Um, uh, all the, you know, the media stuff that I've done. And there's a lot of free resources about intermittent fasting. There are FAQs and links to other podcasts and things like that. I'm active on social media, um, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and I've got a a free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. Uh, And you're more than welcome to join us there. It's a, you know, there are men and women in that group. It's not just women. But a lot of people looking for answers and, you know, wanting, you know, wanting to be connected in a supportive kind of nurturing group. And then I run a masterclass, intermittent fasting masterclass that runs a couple times a year. We'll run the next one. We have a couple running right now, but we uh, will have our next one running in January. Perfect. Thank you, Cynthia. I will make sure that I put all the links below this, this episode. And that's that's it. Thank you very much for everyone for listening. Any kind of questions that you have, please just post them and we will be sure to address them to, to Cynthia and also all the support that you need. We are here to give you that support. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye.